thank you for your call on Dawn and Christine. We lift them up to you. We ask that, that you would be with him and his team as they go and make their way to Honduras to serve there, that uh, the, the word of God may be proclaimed through all that they do as they work behind the scenes. We pray for favor over their work. We pray for uh, traveling mercies as, as they travel to a foreign country. We pray for protection over them, both spiritually um, and physically. Lord, we pray that you would provide for all their needs. We pray for Christine. Lord, be with her. Comfort her as she will be missing her husband. Look over her as well. Lord, provide for her needs. Bless this Honduras team. May you be glorified in all that they do. And may many souls come to saving faith because of this work. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of this sermon is Set Free. Last week, Tim did a masterful job of expositing chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. I love it when a preacher comes up to preach and rightly handles the word of truth, because when, when he does a faithful work in studying, the church benefits. And I left last Sunday understanding my Bible more, and I left last Sunday really encouraged uh, because of the preach word. So all that to say, if you weren't here last Sunday, if you missed the sermon um, that Tim preached, I want to encourage you to go to our website and to listen to that because it was very important as it relates to building a solid foundation for my text this morning. And so listen to uh, last Sunday's sermon. This morning we begin a new chapter and essentially a new section in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Bible scholars have recognized that the letter to the Galatians contained three major sections of two chapters each. And so chapters 1 and 2 can be considered autobiographical, chapters 3 and 4 can be considered scriptural, and chapters 5 and 6 can be considered exhortational. It could be categorized in this way. Chapters 1 and 2 could be the personal part of the letter. Chapters 3 and 4 is the doctrinal part of the letter, and then 5 and 6 is the auditory part of the letter. Or lastly, chapters 1 and 2 can be considered history, chapters 3 and 4 can be considered theology, and chapters 5 and 6 can be considered ethics. Regardless of what we call chapters 5 and 6, the aim that Paul is seeking to, to accomplish here in chapters 5 and 6 is to apply the gospel in the daily living of the Christian life. I just finished a meal at a restaurant when I noticed a, a man sitting um, at a booth by himself. And so I purposely made a way to his booth to genuinely thank him for his service. This man looked disheveled, probably because of PTSD. But much to my surprise, he replied with a smile and with cheerfulness, I'd do it again. I wouldn't change a single thing. 
His countenance and his cheerfulness amazed me because of the magnitude of his sacrifice that we so often take for granted today. It's sad that we take our freedoms for granted so easily today. On the other hand, Americans, well, we take our freedoms with pride, don't we? We like to say that America is the home of the free. So what is freedom anyway? We talk of freedom in the political arena. We speak of freedom of speech or freedom to assemble or freedom to bear arms or freedom to vote. We talk about freedom in the context of social living. We want the freedom to express ourselves however we want to. As Americans, what we really want is personal freedom, don't we? We want to do whatever we desire, whenever we desire, however we want to do it, with whomever we want to do it with. Unfortunately, most Americans want freedom from religion instead of freedom of religion. Freedom from God means that we are free to do whatever we want, right? Well, freedom from God is really essentially bondage to the slavery of our American idols. Our text this morning is sandwiched between two freedom statements. I call that the Pauline sandwich. It is bookend by two freedom statements. Verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. It's been said that when we see the word freedom in the Bible, it always speaks about the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. So what is freedom in its truest sense? True freedom is not self-fulfillment. It is not political independence. True freedom is not licentious living. Living licentiously is really enslavement to your passions. True freedom is liberation from the slavery of sin True freedom is liberation from the sting of death. True freedom is liberation from the effects of guilt. And true freedom is liberation from the dominion of the devil. And this freedom is this, this, the exact freedom that Christ came to give us. If I could put the burden of our text this morning in a short and concise sentence... It would be this way. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Therefore, let us not submit again to the yoke of slavery, but eagerly await the hope of righteousness. So church, are you basking in your blood-bought freedom that Christ purchased for you today? 
For us today, a yoke of slavery could mean a works-based justification because God is holy and you are not. Perhaps you are busy with doing good works to be righteous before a holy God. Or you may be busy doing good works to remain righteous before a holy God. As we have said over and over again as Christians, we ought to be walking in the good works that God has prepared for us in advance, but not as a means for our, for our justification, but instead as a result of our justification. For the Galatians, what Paul meant by a yoke of slavery was the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, considered as a means for justification. And when the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, is considered as a means for justification, the effect is separation from Christ. So this morning I have two points for us. Point number one, bondage to the law separates us from Christ. Look with me at verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Because the Galatians received the gospel with true joy. They were free in Christ. Don't you love how the Apostle Paul does theology? I love how he does theology. He states the indicative before he states the imperative. The indicative imperative is, is really a good hermeneutical tool. It, it's, it's a good way to read your Bible and get to know God and, and to really be encouraged by it. So the indicative statement here that I'm speaking of is when Paul says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. And then he follows that up with a an imperative or a command, stand firm, therefore. He doesn't just, he, he doesn't say stand firm and then Christ will set you free from your yoke of slavery. No, the only reason that we can stand firm in our freedom is because Christ has set us free from the yoke of slavery. You see that the result of being, being able to stand firm is from being set free from the yoke of slavery. God gives us imperatives or commands in the Bible for us to obey and follow, but they are light and they are not burdensome because it always accompanies divine enablement. In chapters 5 and 6, this section is said to be on ethics. So what is ethics? Ethics is really just the union with Christ and life in the Spirit. It's being, it's being a Christian, living a Christian life here on earth. Verse 1 again says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You see, the Judaizers were teaching the Gentile converts to not only accept the good news of the gospel, but in addition to that, they are to observe the commands of being circumcised in the Mosaic law. 
as a means for their justification. The Judaizers, or the NIV puts it this way, the agitators or the false teachers did not believe in grace alone. They believed in grace plus works of the law equals justification. So so in in verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, look. He's saying, behold. He's saying what I'm about to say is very important. He says, Paul, I Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again. He uses law language here. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. The question that we have been trying to answer in chapters 1 through 4 is, how can sinful man become righteous or holy before a holy God? The Galatians were free in Christ because of the good news of the gospel, but they will not be free if they accept circumcision as also a means for their justification and right standing before God. You see, accepting circumcision is embracing the bondage to the law, and Christ, therefore, will be no advantage to them. The law is good and holy, but it was never meant for justification. It was never meant for us as a means for justification. It was never meant for them as a means for justification. The Galatian converts were thinking about being circumcised. But once they accept circumcision, they would have to be bound to keeping the whole law. Adherence to the law requires perfect obedience, which is impossible. The Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, recognizes that the law was a yoke. And he says this, that neither our fathers or us have been able to bear this yoke of slavery. James chapter 2, verse 10 says that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. The problem was that they were not able to obey the law perfectly. And really, only, there's only one person who did. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he did it on their behalf. And he did it on our behalf. F.F. Bruce, a Bible scholar, put it this way. Circumcision is the seal of the law. He who willingly and deliberately undergoes circumcision enters upon a compact to fulfill the law. To fulfill it, therefore, he is bound and he cannot plead the grace of Christ for he has entered on another mode of justification. So I want to ask you, church, this morning, what is your mode of justification? Or if you're young in your faith, what is your mode of being righteous before a holy God. 
Do you base your right standing before God on the works that you do at the church? Do you base your justification on the quality, the frequency, the duration of your personal devotions? Do you base your righteousness before a holy God based on the amount you give in the tithes and offerings? Do you base your righteousness by going on mission trips and obeying the Great Commission? Church, these things are all good, but if you have to do these things in order to be made righteous before God, well, then you are not really freeing Christ at all. You're enslaved to good works. This is why justification must be received through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. The death of our blessed Savior is enough to justify us all by itself. Therefore, as Christians, our justification depends upon what Christ has done, the indicative on our behalf, not on anything that we can do to earn our righteous standing before God. And so what are the implications of a works-based justification. One is Jesus is no longer an advantage to to you and to me. We can no longer live in the good of the gospel. Paul says this in chapter 2, verse 21, if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Obedience to the law by being circumcised or doing anything else as a means for our justification makes Christ's sacrifice unacceptable. It degrades his love for us. It disregards his mercy and it rejects the peace that that Christ offers through his sacrifice. It cheapens grace. It's like a man who owned an old baseball autographed by Babe Ruth. Now, for those of you who are young, Babe Ruth was just a great baseball player. This man knew that this ball autographed by the great Babe Ruth had a high value. And so one day, he decided to sell it. Now, before he could put it on the market, he noticed that the autograph, Babe Ruth, had, had gotten really faded. And so, and so he took a Sharpie and he wrote over Babe Ruth. The result, he had taken something that was priceless to baseball fanatics and made it worthless. Church, we cannot add to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When we try to add our works to it, then his works no longer counts for anything. And so to make Jesus our advantage is to receive him by faith and by confessing that we can't attain the right standing before God on our own. Listen, if you have not put your faith and trust in the Lord, then all of your good works that you're doing right now is never going to be enough. 
you will still have to pay the wages of your sin, which is death, and Jesus Christ is no advantage to you. But if you receive him as the Lord of your life, as the Savior of your life, as the justifier of your life, then you will receive his righteousness, and then you will have right standing before a holy God. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. The word severed there literally means to be cut off from Christ or to make ineffective. You see, our good works as a means to be righteous before God cuts us off from Christ It means that if we reject God's redemptive plan accomplished through Jesus' death on the cross, then we are cut off from Christ. When Paul said, you have fallen away from grace, he wasn't commenting about our eternal security. No one who is genuinely converted, transformed, and united to Christ can ever lose his or her salvation. If you have questions about the assurance of your salvation, then please see John 10, verse 28, and Romans 8, 28 through 30. How, how do we understand this phrase, you have fallen away from grace? Well, I brought a witness with me. Martin Luther says this, For just as someone on a ship is drowned regardless of the part of the ship from which he falls into the sea, so someone who falls away from the grace cannot help perishing. The desire to be justified by the law, therefore, is shipwreck. It is exposure to the surest peril of eternal death. What can be more insane? What can be more insane and wicked than to lose the grace and favor of God and to retain the law of Moses, whose retention makes it necessary for you to accumulate wrath and every other evil for yourself? Now, if those who seek to be justified on the basis of the moral law fall away from grace, where, I ask, will those fall who, in their self-righteousness, seek to be justified on the basis of their traditions and vows? Here's the answer. He says, to the lowest depths of hell. hell." So what's he, what, what, what he's saying here is that for, for the unbelievers who reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and seek to be made right or righteous before a holy God by means of good works, well, they are bound for hell. It's a serious thing, isn't it? That is why it's important for us to teach good and healthy doctrine. It is important that we understand rightly the word of truth so that we can help others who perhaps have not experienced the benefits of the gospel. Works of the law and anything else in addition to that, to to the gospel as a means for justification cuts us off from Christ. But our hope of justification can be found by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Point number two, this is my last point. 
Hope is found in placing our faith in Christ Jesus. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision and nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So how can one become righteous before a holy God? The answer is through the Spirit. The answer is by faith. And so here, Paul transitions from a tone of, 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 from a harsh tone about the realities of the negative consequences to a tone of hope. So he's, he's switching gears here. He's, he's seeking to bring hope to the, the Galatian churches. He's saying as Christians, while we await for Christ's second advent, we have to live in what theologians call, uh, in this tension, the, the already and the not yet. The already is we have been freed from the slavery of sin. We have been freed from the sting of death. We have been freed from the dominion of the devil. So Paul calls us to live in the good of the gospel. Paul calls us to live free from the yoke of slavery. We have been made righteous by grace through faith. But notice the nuance here that Paul says about our righteousness. It's something that we do not work for, but it is something that we wait for. Do you see that? Paul is speaking about the last day, the day of judgment. The day of judgment can sound very scary, but for Christians who rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the verdict is going to be not guilty. For the Galatian converts and for us today, our hope and our assurance for our justification is secured. We have been given the Holy Spirit as a seal and a down payment, and it is through the Holy Spirit that we wait by faith. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith through love. For the Judaizers' church, this was a huge contradiction to their theology. But the saying is trustworthy, church. For anybody in Christ, there is no longer any distinction between the circumcised Jew and the uncircumcised Gentile. All, all, both groups are one in Christ Jesus. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Church, is your faith in Christ a working faith? Is your faith alone or is it accompanied by works? Sounds like a contradiction. Is it accompanied by good works? You see, as Christians, our faith should not be alone but should be a working faith through love for God and through love for each other. You see, love is a product of faith, and love is the genuine outworking. Love is the genuine outflow of our faith. Does your faith produce love for God and for others? 
Or is your faith idle or empty? Church, we are most free when we trust in God in everything. When we fully trust God for everything, the natural outflow in our lives is love for God and sacrificial love and sacrificial serving for others. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. I wonder if the Apostle Paul were alive today, would he be a New England Patriots fan? Probably not. Probably not. Nevertheless, Paul used sports illustrations to make a point, right? He used boxing, he used wrestling, he used track and field. Paul often thought of the Christian life as a foot race, not one like the 100-yard dash, but as you know, our, our Christian life is, it is a foot race, but it's one of a marathon, a race that he himself wished to finish and to finish well. Well, in track and field, some runners win, some runners finish well, some runners get disqualified. The Galatians at first started running well in their Christian life because of the gospel, but Paul feared that his gospel ministry resulted in vain. The Judaizers, these agitators, these false teachers were wanting to add works of the law to the gospel of grace, and Paul feared that the, that the Galatian Gentile converts would be tempted to be disqualified from their race, so to speak. So he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The term hindered can also be translated cut in. And so to put verse 7 in another way, Paul was saying, Galatians, you were doing so well, running free in Christ Jesus in your lives. Who cut in on you from obeying the truth of the gospel? Notice that the truth of the gospel is not only head knowledge, but it's also something that we ought to, be, we ought to obey. The, the truth of the gospel has not only salvific power, but it also has transformative power. You see, church, what we believe affects how we live our lives, and those two things cannot be separated or else your gospel witness is no good. Our faith must be expressed in our conduct, and our conduct is a natural outflow of our faith. In Christ, we are not only Christians in our faith, but we are also Christians in our lives. And so if you are young in your faith, and you are running well, I want to appeal to you, stay the course. Stay the course. Being a Christian these days is difficult. We are surrounded and tempted by sexual immorality, 
Sensuality is all over the place. Division is everywhere. Drunkenness is common and accepted. Being a Christian these days is hard in this fallen world. But God knows that. That's why he gave us his Holy Spirit to empower us to obey the truths of the gospel. Just moving on, verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. The Bible is not clear on the identity of who the false teachers were, But whoever they were, their persuasion, this is clear, did not come from God. The false teachers tried to persuade them to add the works of the law to the gospel truths for their justification. And Paul is saying, they called you to do works in addition to the the good news of the gospel. God called you to him to be free from the yoke of slavery by grace. In the grace of Jesus Christ, he says in chapter 1, verse 6. You see, our justification was never based on our works. It was always based on works, but the works of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was always based on grace, which is undeserved favor. This persuasion had the potential to destroy the churches in Galatia. And so what is the effect of this false teaching that these Judaizers were seeking to teach the the, the Gentile converts in Galatia? Well, today we can call it legalism. Legalism is the doctrine of works to earn salvation or to earn favor from God. Now, it's hard to kind of trace the roots of legalism, but one thing is for sure that it's clear in the word of God It's that its persuasion is not from God. You see, a little legalism in the life of the church can go a long way. It can sideline a healthy church from running well. You see, a little pinch of law added to the free grace of the gospel contaminates the whole gospel. It is no longer the pure gospel. This is why at Trinity, we are ever so vigil at guarding the pure gospel. Because once we deviate one iota, once we deviate one little degree from the pure gospel, our entire theological system will come crashing down. Adding works to the truths of the gospel of grace as a means for one's justification undermines the doctrine of atonement. And by that same reasoning undermines the doctrine of justification. If we add, if we add obedience to the law to our justification, that it would mean that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is no longer enough or sufficient. And in light of the prosperity gospel and all the, of the false teachings that, that the world is being saturated with, where can we find our confidence and our hope that this church, Trinity Community Church, will be okay? 
Well, our confidence isn't on the pastors of Trinity Community Church. Our confidence is in the Lord who is more than able to protect us from being swayed to a different gospel. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you and in us will surely bring it to completion at the day of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is our hope, church. And we can also be equally confident that God is just and he will bring judgment upon the false teachers of this world. So let's let him be, bring the judgment upon them. Verse 11 says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Oh, I love this statement. It reveals Paul's zeal for the gospel. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Apparently, Paul was accused of still preaching circumcision. Maybe because he had Timothy, his son in the faith, he had him circumcised. Now, why did Paul do that? Well, the reason that he had Timothy circumcised was so that he can do evangelistic work in the Jewish community. Paul was careful to observe the Mosaic law so that he can have an inroad evangelistically to the Jewish community. He's not against circumcision in it of itself. What he was opposed to was using circumcision as a means for justification or right standing with before a holy God. Besides, if he was still preaching circumcision, then why was he still being persecuted? His persecution was the proof that he wasn't preaching circumcision. What Paul did was preach the cross where our Savior, Jesus Christ, bled and died for sinners like you and me. To preach circumcision is to preach salvation through works of the law. This elevates man right up there with God. And I think we can get behind Paul and say, they can just go and mutilate themselves if they do that. To preach the cross is to preach salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. It is to preach that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient, that the works of the law were unworthy merits. To preach the cross is to preach that Jesus is the only way, he is the only truth, and he is the only life. This is offensive to many who take hold of a works-based salvation. Why? Because they can't do anything to be justified before God. It's offensive to them. The old question, how can sinful man be made righteous before a holy God? The answer is there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves righteous before a holy God. God is the one who made us righteous through the bloody death of his son on the cross. 
In conclusion, church, true freedom in its truest sin is liberation from the slavery of sin. It's liberation from the effects of guilt. It is liberation from the sting of death. And it is liberation from the dominion of the devil. Therefore, church, let us not live our lives like we are chained to sin. Let us live free in Christ Jesus, empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Let us obey God's holy and good commands for his glory, to magnify Jesus and for his renown. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be all the glory. Let's pray. Worship team, will you please come and join me at the platform? Father, we thank you that there is nothing that we can do to be made righteous before you, our holy creator and father. If there was, we couldn't do it. We're not able to, we're not capable but you are, O oh God. We thank you this morning for sending your son Jesus to die on that bloody cross. There was the shedding of blood, therefore there is forgiveness. Father, I pray that as a church you would help us to live in the benefits of the gospel and that you would help us to repent of all of our desires to do good works as a means to obtain favor or as a means to remain righteous before you. I thank you that the cross bears all that needs to be done through the work of Jesus. I thank you that at the cross we are forgiven and that we have been made alive. So Father, be with us. Help us to walk in the grace of Jesus Christ. Help us to live our lives doing good works as a result of being made righteous. So be glorified as we serve, be glorified as we give, be glorified as we go on mission trips because you have set us free from the yoke of slavery. So we are free to serve you and to glorify you and to bring glory to your name. We thank you. I'll be glorified now as we transition to worship you in our response in song. We thank you for your truths. In the name of Jesus, amen. Church, let's stand and let's...